find people who are as committed as you to building a better future, not only for abortion rights, but for the dignity and health and future of the working class people. Um, we have seen really great success in Mexico and in Latin America with people getting organized, getting in the streets um, and really demanding the change that they want to see. It's, it's not asking politely, um, but it, it absolutely is using that direct action um, in order to make those things happen. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Good evening, everyone. I'm Gina Rosman Wendell, the president of the Chicago chapter of the National Organization for Women, aka CNOW. My pronouns are she and her. Welcome to our discussion panel on how we can mobilize to defend Roe versus Wade. Before we get started, I have a few announcements. First, I'd like to thank our sponsors and steadfast organizers from Chicago for Abortion Rights and Haymarket Books. Without Haymarket handling the technology and providing the online platform for our event, we literally couldn't be here today. I'd also like to thank our many co-sponsors for this event, whose logos should be appearing up on your screen. I encourage you to follow all of our co-sponsors on social media to find out how you can get more involved in this fight. If you'd like more information about our co-sponsors, please take a look at the Eventbrite program or head over to our chat window where our co-sponsors might be sharing their direct contact info and information about any other future events that they are holding to rally for reproductive rights. Today's co-sponsors are the Chicago Abortion Fund, Chicago Feminist Action, Chicago Now, the Clinic Vest Project, the Gay Liberation Network, the Illinois Choice Action Team, the Illinois Single Payer Coalition, Physicians for a National Health Program Illinois, Radical Women US, Refuse Fascism Chicago, and Reproductive Transparency Now. January 22nd on Saturday was the 49th anniversary of the historic 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that decriminalized abortion a decision that's now on the chopping block after decades of rulings that have limited access to abortion. On December 1st, 2021, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization and alarmingly signaled their willingness to uphold the 15-week abortion ban at the center of that case. The court has also repeatedly taken action, allowing Texas's six-week ban to remain in place while its constitutionality is litigated and empowering vigilantes to enforce that ban in Texas right now. These are just two state laws of many that are designed to roll back, if not overturn Roe altogether. Those who oppose reproductive rights are often the same hateful forces who repeatedly attack the rights of LGBTQ plus people, the rights of young people, black and brown people, immigrants, and refugees. If the Supreme Court upholds the draconian Texas and Mississippi laws and others of their like at stake, they'll further embolden extremist forces of hate to expand their attacks on civil rights beyond fundamental reproductive rights. 
If the court overturns Roe, that's just one step for the zealots who are waiting in the wings to bring other legal challenges to overturn seminal court cases that protect our other rights, like the cases that legalize same-sex marriage. Only at our collective peril can we ignore the attacks on the right to abortion that are taking place right now. So how can we mobilize the majority that still defends the seminal decision in Roe? Let's get to our discussion panel. I have a series of questions that I prepared that'll invite conversation among our panelists, but hopefully we'll have some time to address some questions from the audience as well, and our panelists can have some chance to talk to each other about anything that might come up. When it's time for audience questions later on, I'll ask that you put them in the chat box that you can see on your screen. Without further ado, today's panelists are Dr. Barbara Roberts, MD. Dr. Roberts has been a leader in the abortion rights movement for over 50 years. She witnessed firsthand the horrors of illegal abortion before Roe versus Wade made abortion legal in 1973. She helped found the Women's National Abortion Action Coalition and was the keynote speaker at the first national pro-choice demonstration in Washington, D.C. in November 1971. Dr. Roberts was also the first female cardiologist in the state of Rhode Island and is the author of several books, including How to Keep from Breaking Your Heart, What Every Woman Needs to Know About Cardiovascular Disease. Dorenda Hancock. Ms. Hancock is the co-coordinator of the Pink House Defenders, volunteers who create a safe environment for the patients of the Jackson Women's Health Organization, also known as the Pink House, who are the target of the lawsuit to overturn Roe now before the Supreme Court. She's also a co-founder of We Engage, a nonprofit that works to advance an abortion-positive change in our culture, supporting education and engagement of the public using factual, unbiased information about abortion, abortion access legislation, and the truth about is what is happening outside of abortion clinics when people are coming to their appointments. Kudisa Sharif is a fierce advocate for reproductive justice and a full-spectrum birth worker. They strive to embody and in practice an unapologetically Black, queer, feminist, and anti-capitalist politic. At the core of Kudzia's passion for reproductive justice is an understanding of all people's inherent worth and a sense of duty to fight for dignity, respect, and self-determination for all marginalized people. As the program manager with Chicago Abortion Fund, she oversees the helpline that directly connects hundreds of people to abortion care through financial, logistical, and emotional support. Last but certainly not least, we have Kim Varela Broxson. Ms. Varela Broxson is an abortion fund provider, I'm sorry, abortion fund volunteer with the Bridge Collective, a reproductive nonprofit worker at the National Network of Abortion Funds, and a member of Austin Democratic Socialists of America. Thank all of you so much for being here today. Um, and my first question, which I'd like all of you to answer in turn, the roadway decision confirmed a national guaranteed right to abortion. How is that particular holding important to your work as an abortion advocate? And why do we need to defend Roe versus Wade today? Um, whoever likes to speak first can go right ahead. Or maybe I'll pick. Um, Kutsia, how about we start with you? Okay, yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Um, I would start out by saying I think the legal right to an abortion has never really been enough to guarantee that abortion is within reach. And Roe v. Wade is a protection, but it's not actually a promise of access. And although it is a protection we very much need, it's not perfect. And abortion funds like the Chicago Abortion Fund, we see 
we see this firsthand. Um, our callers here in Illinois and in Missouri, Indiana, and other Midwestern states are navigating really serious barriers to care with Roe in place. And in the case of Illinois, even with Medicaid coverage and other protections offered through the state, like the recently enacted Reproductive Health Act, um, even with this, we see, uh, am I breaking up? Okay, okay. Sorry, it froze on my end. Um, even with this, you know, we see callers every day who are still facing barriers, whether it's just navigating um, health insurance, like bureaucracy, trying to get referrals and the time, the delays that that causes for their care, or that they can't access insurance because they haven't been working their job long enough. Like, I don't think it's news that healthcare in this country is really a mess. And ultimately, Abortion rights, um, the right to an abortion is meaningless if we don't have funded clinics in our communities, if we don't have wide accessibility to medication abortion, and also if abortion stories aren't heard and respected and uplifted. Um, ultimately, yeah, we need more than Roe. We need liberated abortion access for everyone. Thank you. I couldn't agree more. Um, Kim, I saw you giving some snaps there. Do you want to take the mic next? Sure. Thank you so much for having me and beautifully said. Yeah. So, um, right. You know, uh, Roe guarantees the right to an abortion, but abortion advocates, um, like he said, also folks in the South know that a right doesn't mean access. Um, the legal right to an abortion doesn't guarantee a clinic is going to be near you, that you won't endure waiting periods or stigma um, to obtain this really common healthcare procedure. Um, doesn't cover funding for the cost um, of the procedure, the logistics, the time off of work to recover, the childcare, like the list goes on and on. So in many places, it really hasn't ever been harder to get abortion care, especially for working class parents. Um, but even still, Roe is the reason why a lot of Texans right now are able to travel to nearby states to get their abortions today, which is wildly important. Um, so for me, Roe is important, um, but it's also the bare minimum. Um, and with the potential of losing this right in the coming months, we've really got to start looking at abortion rights and access as part of a, a larger umbrella of issues. The same states that are restricting abortion care are also refusing federal funding for expanding Medicaid and refusing to offer paid sick time to workers. They're cutting social programs. I'm looking at you, Texas. Um, so defending Roe means tying our work into these other issues um, and really expanding the number of people who can proclaim themselves to be pro-abortion. Um, so I'm really happy to be here today and uh, I'll pass the mic. Um, Dorenda, when we were, Kim just brought up a great point about educating people on access to abortion. And I know that's a part of your work. Um, so I'm going to pass the mic to you next so you can tell us more about why Roe itself is important to your work today. Um, well, it's important to us. I mean, that is what we do. We try to make sure everyone understands what's going on. And, you know, our primary focus is what the antis do on the sidewalk. But I pretty much want to jump more to the part of why we need to defend Roe. Though it is the minimum we can ask for, it's what we've got. And in the past, I've said that, you know, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, um, which is the anti's mechanism for overturning Roe, was the end game. So allow me to correct myself. <laughs> what it is is just the beginning. Um, if they win, thus proving that we aren't intelligent enough to make the choice to control our own bodies, then what's next? I mean, obviously, if we can't do that, um, you know, we can be intelligent enough to 
have a say in who controls this country by the use of our vote. So we might as well turn around and just say goodbye, 19th Amendment. I mean, the domino effect is going to begin as soon as Roe is overturned. Losing Roe is the beginning of what we've strived for the last six decades to earn. The few rights that we have, we've fought for, and it's going to be the end. That's chilling, but quite accurate, I fear, Dorenda. Um, I laugh out of nervousness, but also just because I can't believe that we're actually here. So if I keep laughing when we say these horrible things, it's because it's the only way I can think of to cope with the reality on the ground. Um, Dr. Roberts, you, you've been practicing medicine since before Roe. Um, can you tell us about how Roe changed what we looked like? Pardon me. How Roe changed what things looked like on the ground at that time and then That's what a, and what changed after it went into effect and why you think it's still important to defend today? Absolutely. Well, you know, I was a medical student and a house officer, you know, intern and resident in the days before Roe v. Wade made abortion legal. And I personally saw women coming into emergency rooms with perforated wounds in septic shock, even partially disemboweled because they were desperate enough to put themselves in the hands of back alley butchers. And what we saw immediately when Roe v. Wade was passed and abortion became accessible, and it was much more accessible right after Roe v. Wade than it has been over the ensuing decades, what we saw was an immediate drop in maternal mortality. According to CDC data, in 1965, the maternal mortality per 100,000 live births was 32 women per 100,000 live births died of pregnancy complications, and that included abortions. Uh, in the year uh, before Roe v. Wade, that rate, because of better medical care, had dropped to 15.2, and it fell to 9.6 by 1979. But in 1976, the Hyde Amendment was passed, and if you remember, that prohibited the use of Medicaid and federal funding for abortion. And over the ensuing years, maternal mortality has crept up and crept up and crept up, and in my opinion, it is at least partially due to the fact that abortions have become more and more inaccessible. In, uh, since 1987, the maternal mortality rate has more than doubled from 7.2 per 100,000 to 17.3 per 100,000 in 2017. And no matter how you look at it, carrying a fetus is 33 times more risky. I mean, carrying a fetus to term ha- giving birth is 33 times more risky than having a, a an abortion. And women of color have disproportionately suffered because of the fact that abortions have become more and more um, accessible. And if you look at uh, data from many different places, the maternal mortality is three to four times greater amongst women of color than it is for white women. So the first thing we're going to see is that more women will die. Again, that's horrifying, but I fear that you are completely correct. Um, When you're talking about these mortality rates among women who are trying to carry children to term right now, um, is it safe to say that 
when you you made this link between access to abortion and falling rates of maternal mortality um other than that kind of link there are there other things that you would hope would have changed after Roe went into effect that didn't change well, I think that we became complacent, at least in the early years, um, because we didn't realize um, collectively how vicious and um, uh, recalcitrant and arrogant the opposition to allowing women to control their own bodies was going to become. And I think that the the, the pendulum has swung so far to the right now that I worry about, for example, access of unmarried women to contraception if Roe v. Wade is overturned. I mean, I can remember when I was a young woman, you couldn't, a doctor wouldn't prescribe you birth control unless you were married. That is just horrible. Um, And I agree that slippery slope is such a concern, keeps me up at night. And I think we're all in agreement that we've said that Roe was just the bare minimum. And so when we have states like Mississippi, where it's been banned at 15 weeks, and then while that ban is still pending, throw in another six-week one to boot, um, in Texas, where it actually is already in effect, um, you know, I'm curious, Kim, if you could tell us some of what you've seen on the ground since that ban has gone into effect, even while Roe is still in place. Has there been an immediate effect and has your work changed since that ban has gone into effect? Absolutely. So as a volunteer with the Bridge Collective in Texas, um, I generally would be someone who would drive people to abortion appointments and things like that. But as of today, it's been 146 days since SB8 went into effect. Um, And every single day, Texans aren't able to get the common, safe, time-sensitive abortion care that they need. Um, So we're seeing folks who are under that six-week gestation who can make it to a clinic in time and can uh, can get in with that 24-hour waiting period that's been added. Um, they might still be able to receive care in some cases for free, thanks to abortion funds and funds like Whole Women's Health, um, or rather clinics like Whole Women's Health. Um, but the vast majority no longer have legal access. Um, so many folks who aren't aware that they're pregnant by that six-week marks, um, you know, which is just a few weeks after a person's missed period, um, clinics are no longer able to provide care. So some folks um, will research online and learn about abortion pills. Um, choosing to end their abortions outside of abortion clinics. Um, But many aren't aware that that option exists or are rightfully concerned about legal implications, especially considering Texas's new abortion pill law that just went into effect on December 2nd. So as a result, we've got a lot of pregnant folks, mostly working class people, you know, many of whom are black, indigenous people of color, people who are already parents um, who need to rearrange their lives to leave this giant state in order to get their abortion. So um, they're trying to schedule appointments at overwhelmed out of state clinics. They're trying to find funding, childcare, travel and time off of work um, to get those abortions. So um, abortion funds, like I said, like the Bridge Collective, um, we since September have really seen the number of requests to drive people to clinics specifically really fall. Um, Generally, these are looking more like um, calls to help people get to airports, things like that. Um, We've received some requests for assistance to getting to those out-of-state appointments. Um, We are continuing to do things like deliver reproductive health kits um, that include things like Plan B, pregnancy tests, 
and uh, stigma-free reproductive health resources. Um, but the truth is, and other abortion funds in Texas have been telling us as well, that this is just unsustainable. Um, fund Texas Choice, who is an abortion, a Texas abortion fund who funds travel to abortion appointments, reported that 99.1% of their clients since September 1st have needed assistance to leave the state for their abortion. Um, the clinics in neighboring states are overwhelmed by the demand for appointments for people from Texas. Um, and we're watching legislators outside of Texas um, propose SB-like SB8-like bans all across the country. I think I saw a 30-day ban um, come into play in a state house local, um, in the country. So the landscape of our work has drastically changed, um, and we are preparing for what it looks like for this to unfortunately be our new normal. Um, so we, alongside other abortion funds, are strengthening the communication that we have between each other um, and clinics. Um, we've experienced an outpouring of support from supporters around the country, um, and we're really hoping to mobilize them uh, to help expand access in friendly states, um, bring people who are interested into our movement. Um, times are really hard, but we're really needing to be more resilient than ever. And Dorenda, I know that the bans aren't in effect in Mississippi, but I am wondering if there's been a chilling effect with the litigation against the pink house with your patients that you've seen coming in at this point, And if there's anything that's changed with the way that you've been dealing with people seeking care in Mississippi since the, everything has started there. I think that what you just asked kind of reflects part of our problem and actually no, so many of our patients, probably the majority, don't even realize this is going on. I'm talking about local patients, Mississippi patients. They don't know about the SCOTUS case. They don't know about so many things, which is a greater problem nationwide. No one's taking this as seriously as they should. I keep pointing out Texas to people, you know, it's just a precursor of what we've got to come. And no one realizes it. But referring back to Texas, I mean, right now, about 25% of the patients that the clinic sees are from Texas. And, you know, we've always gotten patients from Louisiana and Alabama, even a few from Tennessee, but never Texas before. And people are flying in, they're driving in. Um, last week, a woman said, we couldn't afford to do this, but we couldn't afford not to do this. So it's it's really difficult. <laughs> um, I think we're extremely fortunate, and as is Texas, that once we were into this and it looked like it was going to stay a while, um, the clinic was able to um, add another doctor to their roster. And so as of the beginning of October, uh, they for years, we've had three days a week that we saw patients at the clinic. And now, many weeks, we're doing five days a week, four and five days, so that, you know, there's more availability for particularly the Texas patients. Um, as far as how that's affected us, it's been super tough. Um, we've always scheduled, um, we've always covered eight shifts a week at the clinic. And now with this expanded access, which we're incredibly grateful for, we're trying to cover 15 shifts a week. And if you've never been to Mississippi, <laughs> you can't understand how hard it is to get people to come out and volunteer to, to do anything that 
you know, is against the status quo to begin with. And um, weekdays, you know, that's incredibly hard because everyone here works anywhere from one to four jobs just to make ends meet. So um, we've had a hard time being able to cover it all, but our tiny little small group has done it because small groups do big things when they have to. But yeah, it's every time we see a Texas car pull into the parking lot. Imagine we just take in a your deep throat. Just, yeah. <laughs> it's there right now. So I mean at least we can be there for them. So. I know that most of us here are fully aware of why the pink house defenders exist in the first place. But for those of us tuning in who might not be as familiar with why such an organization might exist, could you just give a little bit more background on what the defenders do and what it looks like when someone comes to you looking for help? Sure. Um, We are a clinic escort group, just like, you know, many, if not most clinics have now because every clinic that's not, basically in an office building has protesters. Um, Every clinic has a different level of protesters, but particularly since 2016, they've ramped it up and, you know, there's bullhorns, there's ladders, there's giant speakers. And in particularly the, what we call fetal porn signs are everywhere. And so, you know, this is just something that, patients have to face on top of all the other hurdles they've had to get through to get to the clinic. So we, um, our job is to get people from the street into the parking lot, which is small. It only holds 12 cars. And I promise you, we nearly always have more than 12 patients. So, um, we get them in the parking lot. We assure them that once they're in that parking lot, they're safe. The antis can't come onto the property. All they're going to do is yell at you. And we get them from their car to the clinic door with as little harassment as possible. Where we differ from a lot of escort groups, though, what we do is growing as it should. Um, We engage the protesters. Engagement is not getting in their face and screaming a whole lot of curse words that I won't say on here. It's, it's done in many different shapes and forms, but one thing that you can do by engaging protesters is distract them from the patient. It takes their attention away. Um, we have a lot of different mechanisms that we use. We have, you know, music and noisemakers and just talking to them, talking back to them. One thing that uh, a lot of us do is refer to the protesters by name. Just pay no attention to Doug. He just likes to hear himself talk. It gives them a reassurance that we really know what's happening on that sidewalk and that we have a degree of control over it. And that's, you know, how it is. You feel chaos when you come through that barricade of bodies out there. And if you know that the people standing there waiting for you, helping you get in the door, are in control, it reassures the patient. So that's kind of what we do. I really appreciate you giving the perspective on that engagement because, I mean, I know a lot of the work that we do in this area, people 
who work for different other clinic defense organizations might say differently. And I think it's great that we have a conversation about whether or not the methods that we've been doing are working in different ways that we can look at that. So I really appreciate you bringing up and highlighting that difference. Absolutely. Rolling out the welcome mat for these people over the years, like we have is part is it's a part of why we are where we are today. We've made them comfortable. We've let them do whatever they want to do. And they're the ones putting these people in office. So that's where we're standing. Now, Katia, um, you work in Chicago. So obviously, um, we aren't quite as exposed here as someone like Kim or Deronda would be to what it looks like on the ground in a state that's actively trying to ban abortion access. Um, But I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about the idea that Chicago is kind of a safe haven for abortion rights. Um, Kind of letting us know whether or not you think that's actually true um, and what, because we mentioned earlier that Roe is just the bare minimum. So I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that. And then um, just let us know if you've seen some changes with what we're dealing with on the ground, even as far as Chicago, since um, the Texas ban has gone into effect. Yeah, I, I can definitely speak to that. Uh, I know, um, as I mentioned before, you know, I think Roe v. Wade is the floor and that abortion funds are, are, you know, right now are providing this crucial support to their communities across the country, not just the Chicago Abortion Fund, of course, um, but we support folks across the Midwest. So we don't have any requirements for who we support. We work with folks who are in Illinois who are traveling to Illinois or who are staying in their home states. And we work really closely with our sibling funds like the Hoosier Abortion Fund in Indiana, Women's Medical Fund in Wisconsin, and the recently launched Nebraska Abortion Resources Fund. Um, And definitely pre, you know, before SB8, we already saw and we are we were already seeing plenty of folks traveling from southern states like Louisiana, Mississippi, Texas, Arkansas and Tennessee, both to Chicago and to downstate Illinois. Um, and after SB8, this has definitely increased for Texans that we're seeing traveling to downstate in Illinois and Chicago. And um, it's really it's interesting to see how like kinship networks across space are bringing people to Chicago or other parts of Illinois. Like they have family in Chicago and because Chicago Chicago is seen in a lot of places as an abortion safe haven. Like it, it might make more sense for them to fly to Chicago rather than drive to a neighboring state because they have a support system here. Um, in 2021, CAF heard from. 33,700 people and we returned every single call and we ended up funding over 3,000 people most of whom are not were not Illinois residents so uh, the majority of the folks that we're supporting are not Illinois residents um and as as a receiving state for thousands you know if if Roe falls Illinois is preparing more and more for people who are coming to Illinois Within Chicago Abortion Fund, we're staffing up, training more volunteer case managers to meet the growing need, fundraising lots, um, and and clinics are also working to try and meet and have more patients um, with, uh, you know, within their own restrictions and capacity, you know, trying to have more appointments available so folks can get seen. 
Um, but ultimately, we really don't believe that abortion funds should have to fill these resource gaps. That's what they are. They're resource gaps that are created by inequality, not by scarcity of resources. So we believe that our lawmakers, you know, have the obligation to ensure that these resources are shared equitably in communities. And we don't want to try and replicate the the barriers and like the arbitrary barriers created by state lines in particular. So that's part of why we really try to support anyone who calls us, whether it's with direct support or connecting them with an organization in their community that's connected and knows how to how to get them the care that they need. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Angela Davis, an autobiography. Featuring a substantial new introduction by the author, Angela Davis, an autobiography is a classic account of a life in struggle. Angela Davis has been a political activist at the cutting edge of the black liberation, feminist, queer, and prison abolitionist movements for more than 50 years. First published and edited by Toni Morrison in 1974, Angela Davis and Autobiography is a powerful and commanding account of her early years of political activity. With warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction, Davis describes her journey from a childhood on Dynamite Hill in Birmingham, Alabama, to one of the most significant political trials of the century. From her political activity in a New York high school, to her work with the US Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soledad Brothers. And from the faculty of the philosophy department at UCLA, to the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted fugitives. Find Angela Davis, an autobiography at haymarketbooks.org. Great. Um, could you just speak a little bit more to whether or not you think that Chicago and Illinois and states like ours are actually safe havens or because you mentioned that there were, you know, even in these states, obviously we face barriers right now. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I definitely think that Chicago, like I think that purporting Illinois as a safe haven does actually obscure like barriers that people are facing. So it is important that we recognize our situation as a state that has these protections, you know, if Roe falls, I'm like, we can't deny that reality, but it also doesn't serve us to pretend like Illinois is this abortion haven where anyone can access because that's just not true. There are folks who aren't able to access Medicaid coverage for abortion. Um, There are folks who with insurance aren't able to access. And and that's not just because of Roe or, you know, the laws, it's because of, of systems that are blocking them from being able to make decisions about themselves and their futures and a lot of times being stuck in, in cycles of systems. So, so yeah, I guess my answer is no, not a safe haven. But, but again, yeah, recognizing where we are positioned is really important and part of why we're shoring up to be able to receive so many folks. Um, I'm going to change gears a little bit to talking about the access to the abortion pill. Um, And Dr. Roberts, I'd like you to talk to this because as a physician, I'd really like to hear your thoughts on the argument that some people are making, which is that we should kind of just stop trying to defend Roe and admit to the defeat before it begins and instead focus on giving wider access to the abortion pill. Um, And again, a lot of these campaigns are really well-meaning. I love seeing these signs that say abortion pills forever. You know, I'm right there with people on that. But do you think that 
just expanding access to the abortion pill is enough? Or do you think that we still need to push for the judicial protection of abortion rights? I absolutely don't think we should stop defending Roe v. Wade. I think it is crucial that we continue the fight. And if Roe v. Wade is overturned, I think we have to uh, use every weapon in our armamentarium politically. I would say use everything but violence to see that that the right to a safe legal abortion is codified under federal law. I mean, I live in Rhode Island, which is a heavily Catholic state, but in 19, uh, I'm sorry, in 2019, the legal right to abortion was codified by the Rhode Island legislature, which passed the Reproductive Privacy Act, which means that no matter what happens with Roe on the national level, abortion will remain legal in in Rhode Island. And I think... um, I think we may well see Roe v. Wade overturned, but I think we have to overturn the overturning. And I think we need to work at the state level. I think we have to have massive legal demonstrations. I think we, we have to have lobbying. I think we have education, have to have education. I think we need to have um, sit-ins. We need to have panel discussions. We have to debate the fetus fetishists because they are fetus fetishists, they're not pro-life. And I think we have to do all of these things. Medical um, abortion is all well and good, but if we don't focus on the fact that as women, we have an absolute right or we should have an absolute right to control what happens inside our bodies, we're losing sight of the big picture. And you know, the the um, the abortion pill is actually two pills. It's a progesterone inhibiting uh, uh, medication, and it's um, actually a medication that was used to treat, uh, to prevent stomach ulcers in people taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. But the combination causes the uterus to expel the products of conception. It can only be used up to about 11 weeks gestation. And so it's not ideal. Uh, the advantage is that, you know, a woman can take the pills in the privacy of her own home. But there is, and I don't happen to recall the percentage of uh, uh, complications, but there are sometimes retained products of conception. And so the woman still has to undergo a dilatation and curatage if that complication occurs. I really appreciate your perspective on that. I think, um, it is one that we need to hear more of when we, because I think a lot of times there's a danger in referring to the idea of just abortion pills as the answer when we don't know about whether or not that would work in every situation. And particularly when we talk about the idea of, you know, late-term abortion bans that are already in place, obviously that's not going to, abortion pills aren't going to help someone in a situation like that. So I think it's really important to take that whole universal picture into consideration. Um, You also mentioned how one of the tools in our box that we need to be focusing on is education. And so I wanted to ask Dorenda, um, you have a nonprofit that you founded, We Engage, that is working to change the way that the public thinks about abortion. And so I'm curious as to what steps you think we can take to educate people to change the public perception of the fight for abortion rights and um, what you think of common slogans that we have right now that emphasize abortion as safe and legal and rare. So I was wondering you could speak to Let's talk about 
that terminology. Um, allow me to be an anti for just a second, okay? If you go through with this, you're still going to be the mother. You're just going to be a mother of a dead baby. We are the voices of the voiceless. Please, ma'am, don't go in there and murder your child. That's just, you know, a few of the lines we hear all the time from the sidewalk. Uh, more importantly, it's what the patients hear. And the media has sucked up their language. What unborn? When you say that to people, what in the world are you talking about? I mean, so the big organizations that have supposedly fought for us all these years are countering those messages with pro-choice, safe, legal, and rare. And that's where it's gotten us. It's gotten us here because what's interesting or exciting about that, there's a whole lot about the unborn and you'll still be the mother of a dead baby. I mean, that gets attention. You know, that's what the press wants to use. Let me give you a stop patriarchy line that I think should have been used that would have gotten a lot more attention. I mean, it's used, but not in the press. Abortion on demand and without apology. Because this polite and respectful terminology we've used all these years has us right where we are. We constantly say pro-abortion. We don't say pro-choice anymore because we've got to say the word. Um, the, my co-founder of We Engage, Kim Gibson, uh, put a graphic out about two days ago that pretty much says it all. Without abortion, there is no choice. And, you know, that's where we are right now. We've got to use the same terminology and get what we're, what we're fighting for here at the end game into the press. We can't keep using the same phrases over and over and expecting different results there's no time left and like I said we've we've tried to educate people basically just by showing them what's really happening out there what happens on the sidewalk um, you know we have legislators that come out there to the sidewalk that these people have helped elect they've campaigned for them they've funded them they're the ones passing these or introducing these bans and getting them passed and Everyone still has this, not everyone, but the general public still has this image in their heads that it's the little old ladies out there, you know, just handing out rosary beads or information. And that's not what's happening. These are the people who not only want, sure, our antis don't even want six-week bans or eight-week bans. They don't support those. They want it completely abolished and criminalized and so you know those abortion pills that are going to save us that you don't have to go to a clinic to get remember those well that's going to be criminalized right 
So if you have a complication, you have to go to the hospital. I guess it didn't save you, did it? Because you're going to get prosecuted if you happen to survive. Gina, could I? Could I? Absolutely, please. Yeah. Yes. Um, I agree that we have to change the conversation. And, you know, I spent the better part of two years flying all over the country, speaking at demonstrations, speaking at um, universities, speaking at uh, educational conferences, and speaking in front of state legislatures. And the very first time I was asked to speak on abortion, I was the medical coordinator for a class action suit against the Connecticut abortion laws. This is before Roe v. Wade, it was called Women versus Connecticut. And I was asked to speak as the medical coordinator of that lawsuit in front of some legislative legislative hearings that were considering some minor um, liberalization of a very strict Connecticut abortion law. So I figured, well, I'm going to change the conversation a little. And I opened my talk by saying a popular medical dictionary defines disease as literally a lack of ease and venereal disease as one usually acquired through sexual intercourse. It is apparent, therefore, that unwanted pregnancy is the most common venereal disease. It is associated with immense physical, mental, economic, social suffering. And women throughout history have risked pain, mutilation, and death in numbers that stagger the imagination to be cured of this disease. Today, when when today, when having an abortion is statistically safer than carrying that pregnancy to term, abortion is still widely withheld by antiquated laws and religious tenets not agreed to by most people. We have to look at it more as it's a health issue. It's a women's health issue. Abortion is a cure for a venereal disease. I think that's such an interesting way of putting it. Um, and I wish that we heard it put that way long ago. Um, when we have this common thread that I think we've all touched on of these laws aren't just about, you know, protecting the quote unquote unborn. It's about controlling women's bodies. Um, I think there's another thing that's a threat among these lot of anti people who we haven't really talked about yet. And that's the underlying concept of wanting to control everyone who is different from them. And so, Katsia, in your work, I know that you really focus on the impact of abortion access for marginalized communities. And I think that it doesn't go out of turn to say that a lot of hatred and um, discrimination against people in marginalized communities goes hand in hand with what antis are out there doing. And so I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about the intersection between the abortion rights struggle and movements that advance equity for people of color and transgender people who are trying to access abortion. And if you think that overturning Roe would have an impact on those communities greater than the ones that you would see on well-off white upper-class people. That's a great question. I, I definitely see uh, like the movement for abortion justice as a movement that is an advancing equity for marginalized communities and like all marginalized communities. And I know as Dr. Roberts mentioned with the Hyde Amendment, which barred people from federal insurance, like covering Medicaid, um, 
it was one of the very first attacks on abortion access post Roe, and it was introduced by a racist white man from right here in Illinois, and like it was specifically intended to restrict access for the most marginalized. It targeted poor people, it targeted people of color specifically, and I think it's really important that we continue to understand how white supremacy and like capitalism inform the way that attacks on abortion look right now and will continue to look. And I think we can look to the reproductive justice framework, which was coined by black women in Chicago in 1994. It really illuminates the ways that tactics um, against marginalized people, specifically tax tactics in to restrict abortion access, um, are an intersectional issue and like really provides, I think like it's just like an expansive understanding of what we're really fighting for. Like, it's not just that we, that it's not just that cis women have the right to abortion, but that everyone has the human right to maintain personal bodily autonomy, including the ability to have children, to not have children and to parent children in safe and sustainable environments. And I think that piece is really important to understanding how, how, systems and structures affect our ability to enact bodily autonomy. It's not just choice, you know, like we've been saying. Um, and I really like the definition that's offered by Forward Together. They define reproductive justice as a state in which all people have social, political, and economic power and resources to make healthy decisions about their gender, bodies, sexuality, and families for themselves and their communities. And I feel like that that definition just really, I think, speaks to, again, like the intersectionality and how, you know, the the fight for abortion justice is about fighting for um, for gender justice, for gender freedom, for immigration justice, economic justice, housing justice and food justice. Like these are all really intricately connected. And when we when we when which I think is often, you know, abortion can be pigeoned as like a women's issue. And it's true that women have abortions, but also people that don't identify as women have abortions. And we need to make sure that in our work, we're being inclusive in order to really fight for justice, because if we're not inclusive, then some people get left behind. And that's not really, that's not really what what we want, what we're working for. So, so yeah, I feel like it's, it, there's so much to talk about in that question, like you said, like all the different ways that, that this work intersects with other things. And, and, and abortion funds, you know, because of the way that we function to support people who are facing so many barriers, we inherently, you know, we are the ones supporting these folks who are facing um, legal barriers as well as social ones. And and abortion stigma is a really big barrier to care too, which, um, you know, when we say abortion, like Dorinda said, we work to to reduce that barrier. And, and stigma is a really, you know, it can be a really harmful and violent thing as, as, you know, as Dorinda was speaking to with antis and stuff. Kim, I noticed a lot of vigorous nods of agreement with what Katia was saying. Um, would you want to chime in and add some thoughts to that? I'm just like reading through the notes that I put together and I'm like, yep, that, yep, yep. Um, so just, you know, echoing a lot of what they said, just that um, kind of goes back to what I was saying about seeing abortion rights as not just, you know, again, not pigeonholing it as a women's issue, as just a very narrow focus, but it really impacts 
um, all areas of a person's life. And so, um, yeah, just kind of expanding our, it would encourage people listening to expand their thinking about what abortion rights is about. Um, and adopting this reproductive justice framework is a really great way to see how the, how the right to abortion impacts all the different parts of a person's life. Um, so just a lot of echoing what Kitsia said, because they're brilliant. <laughs> um, so this is a question for everyone. And then I'm going to get into some of the questions that I'm seeing coming in from our audience members. Um, and it's something I think that Katsia and Kim, you both just touched on, which is how you can connect the fight for abortion rights to the fight for freedom at large. So I would love to hear a little bit from each of you on how you think that the abortion rights fight connects to the right for the freedom fight generally. And what are some ideas that you have right now as to how people could jump into that fight to defend abortion rights? Um, and so I'll go ahead and just go around the circle. And Dr. Roberts, we haven't heard from you for a minute. So why don't we start with you? Well, I think I already talked about the various tactics and strategies I think we have to use in the abortion struggle, and, and they apply to other struggles. I mean, I was also an anti-Vietnam War activist, and um, I really believe that the huge, massive anti-war demonstrations um, put so much pressure on the government and Nixon that they realized that they had to uh, end the war. And so I think we have to work at a national level with massive national peaceful demonstrations. I think we have to work at the local level of our state legislatures. I think we have to encourage more feminist women to run for office. It's not just important to get more women in state and uh, national legislatures and on the Supreme Court, because frankly, the last woman appointed to the Supreme Court is a horror. She's a nightmare for women's rights. We have to support women who are feminists, who have an understanding of the importance of feminism to the whole struggle for human rights. We make up half of the human race and we have been uh, repressed and oppressed and suppressed for millennia and it's time for that to end. And I think we have to connect the struggles of women to struggles of other oppressed peoples like minorities, like people who are not heteronormative or whatever the correct term is nowadays, I don't know. But I think we have to use every weapon in our armamentarium because otherwise we're going to lose all of our rights. We're going to lose, we'll probably lose the planet if we don't rein in the way we're destroying our planet then a lot of these things are going to be moved because, you know, human race is, <laughs> has a very poor outlook. But it's all part of the same struggle. It's a, it's a struggle for humanism. It's a struggle to put human values ahead of the pursuit of the almighty dollar, ahead of rampant uh, capitalism, which is destroying the planet. Couldn't, I couldn't agree more with all of what you just said. Um, Dorenda, how about you? What do you think? Yeah, Barbara covered a lot there. Um, everyone who's doing their work in this field, just chatting about it on Facebook, needs to get off their asses and get into the streets. Um, I, I'm still just kind of in shock right now because in 2013, before um, 
when they were, I can't think of what it's called right now, but the admitting privileges law that they fought. Um, Texas was amazing when Wendy um, Davis did the filibuster. They filled the Capitol. There were 7,000 people standing on the steps outside. I mean, that's only been eight or nine years. What's happened? The apathy. Um, yeah, you know, COVID is a problem with everything. You know, that's that's brought us down. It's deflated us. But right now we've got to overcome that. And we've got to get back to where Texas was in 2013 and get in the streets. Um, this isn't exactly the same, but there's one other thing I want to touch on here that I realized I hadn't talked about. You know, like I said, the domino effect will begin. And once they have us controlled to the degree that they're, they find acceptable, we all pretty much know the LGBTQ community is next. You know, they're going to get, they're going to attack gay marriage. Um, I mean, there's just steps that they're going to take, but we have to talk about the fact that they want this to be a theocracy. Okay. All of this, all these people on the sidewalks, tell me how many of them are not there because of their religion. You know, this is about religion. This is about their God and how they perceive we should live. This has a big part to play in it. And no one wants to speak to that. And we better realize that that's a tool that they're using. And they're going to use that to convince people who don't get what's going on, the good church folks who are there every Sunday, um, you know, who are well-meaning Christians, you know, praising their God. But these are the people who are going to take the power. And they're going to use their religion as a tool to take this further and further to all of the different groups of us that intersect. They're, be aware of the God delusion. I believe I've read the book to which you <laughs> refer there. Um, and again, laughing out of sorrow for the fact that we're currently in a society where so many are using the excuse of their religion as a means to hold other people down and treat other people like they're subhuman. Um, every day, that makes me just furious. Um, Kim, would you like to speak more as to kind of what your thoughts are on how we can keep fighting right now? Yeah, absolutely. So I think right now we need to be talking loudly about abortion um, and without stigma. So um, we need to be pulling out the discrepancies between what our elected leaders said that they would do and what they're doing now. We can't even get Joe Biden to say the word abortion. Um, it's been a year, Joe. Um, but we really need to have deep caring conversations with our loved ones about why abortion is important, why we find it important. Um, and we need to organize um, in our places of faith, right? Like um, I, I hear Dorenda's comments about um, that there are certainly people who are using their faith as, um, you know, as a shield. And I know that there are many people of faith who believe in, the, who believe in supporting abortion. And they believe that that is, um, that is certainly something worth fighting for. So we need to organize in those places. Um, we need to organize in our workplaces. Um, in our neighborhoods and elsewhere to make our support of abortion known. 
Um, and I do have a few like specific uh, ways that I think people could take action. Um, so because obviously I'm a huge supporter of abortion funds, um, donate or volunteer to your local fund. Um, you can go to abortionfunds.org slash funds to find your local fund. Um, we will even be kicking off the national, um, fundraiser, which is called Fundathon. It's coming up next month get ready. Um, this gives you an opportunity, gives individuals opportunities to talk to people that they love about abortion, to solicit donations for their local abortion fund or any abortion fund that they'd like. Um, and, uh, and really just, again, bring people into this movement, um, and contribute in a really concrete way. I'd also encourage people to join organizations, get involved. So I spoke already about unions, um, but you could also um, become an individual member of the National Network of Abortion Funds. You could join um, an organization like the Democratic Socialists of America, which I am a part of. Um, helping people, you know, find people who are as committed as you to building a better future, not only for abortion rights, but for the dignity and health and future of the working class people. Um, we have seen really great success in Mexico and in Latin America with people getting organized, getting in the streets, um, and really demanding the change that they want to see. It's it's more than just getting out to vote. It's uh, really demanding what it is that we want to see change and doing the work to make that change happen. Um, and it's not asking politely, um, but it, it absolutely is using that direct action um, in order to make those things happen. So yeah, I think that's what I would encourage people to do. I, again, everyone is saying all of these things that just come right out of my own head. Um, I'll take this moment to remind our co-sponsors that if you have events that you are planning in this vein, or you have other links to your social media or things like that, these are some of the organizations that we have right now working on the ground, organizing, doing all of the work that Ken's talking about um, at the Chicago rallies. The Chicago for Abortion Rights group has this beautiful green banner that we put together over the last few months. And that green signifies the nationwide effort that Ken was just talking about in Latin America and Mexico, um, the color that everyone is uniting on to really just come together as a world to stand up and say that we must, must, must must protect our personhood at this time. Um, Katsia, would you like to add anything to what everyone else has said about the steps we can be taking right now? Yeah, um, not much to add. I will just emphasize definitely connecting with your local abortion fund if you're interested in learning about abortion justice and reproductive justice. There's um, also, like, I know Chicago Abortion Fund created a toolkit. Um, that talks just about what, what Kim was talking about, talking about abortion and how to talk about abortion in your community. You can access that at bit.ly slash say abortion. Um, and yeah, and definitely Fundathon um, is a really great way. I know there's some questions about like how to support and how to really dig in. And a lot abortion funds across the country um, are a part of the National Network of Abortion Funds, which has helped um, abortion funds scale up. And a lot of funds are in different places so volunteering might actually be like a, a heavy lift for some funds so figuring out you know what 
is the best way to support your local org um, is really important. And then there was something else I was going to say, and I forgot it. But I also just wanted to uplift um, the Texas funds and like funds in the South, specifically as leaders in this movement and encourage everyone to look to them, follow them on social media, if that's your thing, and figure out how you can um, really look to, to them and, and their leadership in this work. Um, and oh my other thing was going to be um to kind of like push on top of the donate to abortion funds um you can push that further and become a monthly donor because knowing that that money is coming in monthly is so 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 important to our ability to continue to support people into the future and it can feel really good to give a big dollar donation now and you can do that and sign up to be a monthly donor so your fund knows they have your support awesome Kim just got very excited at the uh, plug for monthly donations. So if you haven't set one of those up yet for your local abortion fund, now is definitely the time to do it because we're going to need this money more than ever as we keep this fight going. Um, So some of these really thoughtful questions we're getting from the audience members um, right now, I've got two that are along the same vein. So I'm going to combine them for you all. Um, Nancy Rosenstock asked, Um, which some of you have touched on, that she feels like we need a national mobilization before the Supreme Court rules and, you know, taking to the streets. And Haley Pesson has also wanted to know what you all think about how we can build this grassroots abortion rights movement right now to bring out the majority of people who we know support abortion rights in the U.S. So we're talking about organizing and getting involved, but what are some concrete ways that we can actually get these grassroots things moving? Does anyone have any ideas that they'd like to speak to on that? Um, I can jump in and speak a little bit to some of the the mobilization and like organizing that the National Network of Abortion Funds has done. Um, just recently, at the anniversary of Roe, uh, we there was a campaign launched, um, abortion within reach, which is really specifically a um, listing demands um, for different stakeholders in this work from lawmakers, like I talked about before, you know, demanding that lawmakers move money um, to fill these resource gaps and also uh, philanthropists and um, folks within like moving money in, in repro in general. Uh, at this point, I think the number is that like 3% of philanthropy that goes towards repro health and rights work goes to direct service. Um, and that's a really small amount of money. Um, again, like the resources are there to fund abortion. It's not about scarcity. Um, so with these demands, with this campaign, Abortion Within Reach, it's really about calling specifically, um, like I said, in, in our communities, individuals, as well as larger stakeholders, how we can move to achieve real abortion access and justice. Um, I believe you can look up hashtag abortion, abortion within reach um, and you can sign on to the demands to support as well. Is there anyone else who would oh, want to speak yeah. to? Can I say something? Yeah, please, Dr. Um, Robert. Thank you. Know, you. Back in the early 70s when we were you know, uh, having mass demonstrations against the war and for the legalization of abortion, there was already, there were already coalitions of, for example, anti-war groups or feminist groups that were organizing these mass demonstrations. So I think one of the things we have to do, and and maybe some of the co-sponsors of today's uh, discussion would be interested, I think that these, these organizations that are already in place 
I hope they would call for a meeting and propose a date, you know, in whenever, uh, I'm not sure, I think it's June that the Supreme Court is going to hear these arguments, but they probably won't, you know, release their um, decision for many months. But hopefully before they even meet in June to have really massive demonstrations. Um, when we called for the first uh, massive um, WONAC demonstrations, we had one in Washington and one in, in San Francisco because a lot of people can't travel across the country uh, to a demonstration, but more people can travel for down from the middle of the country to one of the other coasts to go to a demonstration. But I think the organizations like National Organization for Women, like Planned Parenthood, like all the other uh, organizations that are working uh, on abortion rights, should get together and call for massive, peaceful, legal demonstrations, in at least in Washington and maybe elsewhere, to put pressure on the Supreme Court and put pressure on legislators to do the right thing. I know I, I was one of the speakers at our local demonstration on October 2nd. But I think, you know, little and, and not so little demonstrations all over the country don't really generate the pressure that massive legal demonstrations do. I mean, 200,000 people marching through downtown Washington, D.C. is going to get the attention of the Supreme Court. It's going to get the attention of Congress. This, these are the kinds of things we have to do in, in addition to everything else. I, again, could not agree more. I think a national mobilization effort is needed now more than ever. Um, I do know that the next thing I can tell that we're doing here in Chicago with Chicago for Abortion Rights is a march that we're sponsoring on March 5th in celebration of International Women's Day. My hope is that that will be one of many actions that we take in the next few months to make sure that we keep people engaged and mobilized and on the streets. Um, Kim or Dorenda, did you have any further ideas about how we can get people motivated to get on the streets right now? Well, it's not really my idea, but this is happening. It's already being formed. Um, RiseUpForAbortionRights.org, if you want to go there. Um, one of your co-sponsors, I'm sure, Refused Fascism Chicago. Um, they can probably tell you a lot more about it than I can, but since our Taylor is working on this, um, they're beginning to organize right now and plan to do that between now and especially March 8th, International Women's Day. And it's going to be pretty radical. And that's where we are right now. We need to be more radical. So if you check that out, that's a good place to start. Terrific. Thank you. Kim, what did you like to add to that? Yeah, I was actually going to, you know, um, shout out the Chicago for Abortion Rights. I think that that is such an excellent coalition um, of, of organizations. And I think that replicating similar, um, you know, similar uh, coalitions around the country would be incredible um, for making actions like this happen. I think you've um, pointed out International Women's Day is a really important day and um, an opportunity for us to, um, you know, to, to work together and, and really show up and show out for abortion. Um, and I think um, reclaiming, you know, uh, uh, May 1st, rec reclaiming May Day, um, Biden thinks we're going to go back to paying our student loans that day. And I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, and I, it's not going to, nothing will change unless we show up and show out like you guys are talking about. So I think um, 
finding an organ, finding organizations locally is a really good thing. And having these national organizations that can really tie us together. So thinking about, like I, I mentioned, DSA is one of them, abortion funds as others. Um, but really, um, seeing all of these different organizations as groups that could potentially, uh, coalesce and form coalitions together in order to make these, um, the, you know, in order to make these demonstrations, not just flashes in the pan, but really sustaining movements that continue to engage people, um, in little and big ways, um, to show up and show out. Yeah. I keep saying that, but I mean it, uh, <laughs> I think show up and show out is a great way of putting it because, you know, it is really easy to just go to one March and feel like, all right, I did it. And now we're, now everything's going to be great again. But the reality of the situation is we need to get ready for the long haul and it's not showing up. is not just showing up once showing out. You've got to get other people to get just as angry and out there as you are in this fight. Um, along those lines, another question that we had come in was from Amy Nobles, who from the practical vein wants to know whether we think there's more of a need for volunteers on the ground or for funding or for both. And so I would love it if someone could speak to how the volunteers and funding go hand in hand to get this movement to continue. I'll jump in and say my quick answer is reflective of the National Network of Abortion Funds slogan, which is fund abortion, build power. And so both, I think it's definitely both being able to build power through relationships, organizing, mobilizing, and also moving money because money is power too under capitalism. And we, whether we like it or not, we're here and we need to move money in addition to power and time and resources. And I know Dorinda talked about like, capacity and burnout like is, is are such real considerations right now so especially like I get so excited about new volunteers and new energy because it's just so so important with this work can be so draining and um it's important that we pour into ourselves individually and as a community so all of it bring it all <laughs> did anyone else want to chime in on that I think could see us at it pretty well um more of everything, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, the only thing that I would add is um, uh, I think that there, I think yes, both is really the answer. I'm thinking about um, that, you know, there could be like Dorinda is um, here from a clinic defense project. Um, I think that like there are very likely um, an increased need for clinic defenders. So that could be a way for people to get directly involved and plugged in. Um, when I'm thinking about funding, um, I'm remembering a few, um, a few companies here in Texas who um, at the behest of their employees saying, we want to show up for Texas. We want to show up for Texas abortion funds with this stuff happening and, you know, forcing their big corporations to make donations, um, to, to add abortion funds to the matching, um, for like the, you know, they have a donation matching that they do. Um, so really again, mobilizing in your workplace as well for using these big corporations that some people work for um, to get some of that money moved. If you know people in philanthropy, if you have stocks that you can move, you know, um, these are all things that make money move to abortion funds and to people. Um, and by, you know, by proxy, by two people who need 
the cash to get their abortion. Um, so I think that all of those would be really great ways for people to get involved. And again, Fundathon is coming. It's a great way to uh, move some money as well. Um, Dorenda or Dr. Roberts, did you want to weigh in on that? Well, I just want to say I'm very happy to learn about these funds because I actually didn't know they existed, and that will be my next contribution. <laughs> Woohoo! Love hearing that. <laughs> um, Dorenda, did you have anything you wanted to add to this? I don't think I can add anything. <laughs> they did a great job. It has been said. We need it all. <laughs> um, all right. I will have. I think we've got time for a couple more questions here. Um, so first, reminding us all again of what's at stake, I think we've done a great job of speaking to this so far, but from Jay Becker, she was hoping we could talk a little bit more about the impact of the Supreme Court's decision if they were to overturn Roe immediately on abortion access and birth control methods. Um, could we just kind of get a reminder of what that immediate impact would look like on the ground? Would anyone be comfortable? Dorinda, it looks like you're ready to jump right in on that. So please go ahead. So the immediate impact is 12 states with trigger laws. We're one. Um, within 24 hours, abortion will be illegal, period. Um, 37 states total are at risk of it happening, you know, within a very short time. And this is my thing. I mean, I so appreciate everyone who's doing support funding, you know, to get people to Chicago, to get people to New York and to California. But right now we've already heard, you know, these funds are strained just with Texas. So when we put the other 36 states on there, all the people who need to get 500, 900 miles away to get their procedure, um, every day I see people that have barely made it here from the Delta to our clinic, two hours. They barely made it. Their cars barely make it. They barely had the gas money to get here. And yeah, you know, the, the clinic's great about connecting them to funds. They get funding, but think of, like, I'm going to just give you a ballpark figure. Our clinic probably sees 250, 300 patients a month, minimum. And that's the ones who can get here. Um, are we going to have funding out there to get all those people to New York or Illinois? And some people are terrified. Do you know how many people I know here that have never flown in an airplane? I mean, add all of this on top of already what they're dealing with. It's just not going to work, you guys. So many more patients, people are going to be left behind. Worst birth in a state that won't expand Medicaid, fights against SNAP and WIC and any social programs. But here we are. It means. I mean, I think that what you just said is all right on. And for people, I know a lot of people might want to think that it's being alarmist to speak that way, but it's not alarmist. It's fact. It, it is fact that if this decision 
is overturned, now that would mean catastrophe immediately on the ground in 12 states in a way that we haven't seen, at least we've never seen that in my lifetime. And I don't want to see it in my lifetime, not to mention the fact that I think it's an indignity that it's even a question because in my opinion, of course, we all have a right to abortion because we have a right to decide how our bodies are governed. We have a right to determine what we do with our bodies. It should not be up to the court, but here we are. So that alarm just needs to be sounded over and over again to get everyone to understand how important it is to actually get in the streets. Dr. Roberts, women do you want to come in will, on that? Women will die. They're dying right now. In large numbers. My prediction is in large numbers. Right. But we, as I said, we have people right now who can't get from the Delta to Jackson. And we don't know. I mean, how many women out there are trying to self-abort right now? Before, it's, I mean, when you have one clinic in your entire state, and then when it's gone, you're done. It's terrible to think about, but we have to think about it. I'm grateful that everyone here is willing to confront that head on to talk about it, because if we don't, we're going to link and it's going to be gone. So um, I have one more question here that I think would be a bit of a helpful note that we could hopefully discuss. Um, And this is from Pamela Quintana, who wants to know how we can connect to help expand abortion access for all genders. That's a great question. I think um, a big or like I think a big first step and an important first step is, again, like using inclusive language when we're talking about people who are getting abortions and when we're talking um, and advocating like around abortion access and reproductive justice in general um, and definitely like advocating within our communities um, to make sure that that's a priority in in talking about abortion and reproductive health in general. Um, and I also think supporting like local organizations again that are that are putting at the forefront gender justice in within abortion justice work. Um, and what was the other thing? Yeah, I think. Um, Oh, I was just going to mention like supporting local clinics as well, um, like the abortion care network and independent abortion clinics that are leading a lot of the work. Um, and in some states, you know, they and across the country, they're providing the majority of abortion care um, and really leading to, to provide compassionate and holistic abortion care that's affirming for anyone and everyone. Wonderful. Thank you. Kim, it looked like you uh, wanted to chime in there as well. Did you have anything to add to that? Again, we've got a brilliant, uh, (laughs) we've got an expert here, so I'm going to defer to Katia. They said everything I would say. Wonderful. I mean, it is tempting when we're all afraid to kind of just narrow the scope, but I think that narrowing it right now would be so dangerous. And what everything you just said could see about making sure that we're inclusive and that we keep our eye forward when we're not moving back is really the only way we're going to actually succeed is if we bring everyone in and 
know that we're fighting for everyone who needs this right to abortion access. Yeah. Um, we're, we're running pretty low on time, but I wanted to see if there was maybe one takeaway that you all wanted to share, give everyone one last chance to deliver a message on what you think we should be doing right now or what you think the hope for the future may be, just something that we can all take away and run with on our own to keep this movement going. To wait for the courts, but I don't think we should be waiting for the courts. Um, Besides just getting in the streets, um, obviously, you know, we need representation at the state houses. This stuff is, if Roe stays, we've still got all these state level bills that are going to keep coming and going to keep coming. And, you know, we're going to gut ourselves. It's not, if some, by some miraculous thing, we're able to keep Roe around another year or two. You see how many bills they've introduced already, and they're sitting there right now, ready to bring more and more. You know, a six-week ban's not enough. We've got to have a total abortion ban and criminalize it. So don't quit letting your legislators know how you feel. I'm not much it's going to help, but don't stop. Keep keep making, and better yet, better than just emailing them or calling them. Show up outside of their offices, you know, show up at the Capitol, even if you're just standing there with a sign, you know, be there, come out, you know, on a Wednesday or whatever, let them know you're here. That's the biggest problem. They just don't seem to want to act like we exist. You know, get a big pink, purple, blue, orange polka dot sign that they have to look at and make them look at you. And look them in the face and let them know that, you know, you're here and you're not going away. Ah, I love the way you just said that. Thank you. Kim, see ya. Yeah, I think what I would tell people is to get organized. The reason why this is happening is because the right is incredibly well organized. They've been organizing churches and uh, local state houses and politicians and um, for years and years. And that's sort of how we got to where we are. Um, and quite frankly, I don't want to wait as long as they have for this to have been overturned for us to fix it. Um, but it's not going to happen without people um, showing up with um, alongside others, right? You, this isn't something that any one of us is going to do alone. Um, we need to build strong um, organizations and coalitions um, to show up for people who are getting abortions, people who need abortions, um, and for our future. Um, so really encourage people to, um, you know, again, I, I like the idea Dorenda mentioned about putting pressure on elected officials. I think that's incredibly important and um, do it in an organized fashion. I also think we need to be sharing information with one another. Um, I know I, I agree that abortion pills are absolutely not a silver bullet and um, they do have the potential to hopefully help um, prevent some of these, you know, more horrific stories we hear about back alley um, situations. We're sure as hell not going back to that. Um, so protect each other, take care of each other, um, and uh, and get involved with an organization that's going to help you fight for not only abortion justice, but economic justice, environmental justice, racial justice, and gender justice. I'll pass it to Katia. 
Um, the only things I, well, I just wanted to add that I think we all have a role in the movement. Like everyone has something to offer, whether you can show up in person or if that's not accessible for you, um, showing up virtually or whether or not you have money to move or people to connect with, there's, there's a place for everyone. Um, and emphasizing also like education, not just around like what, the circumstances are now, but also the history. I talked about how attacks on abortion access are rooted in white supremacy and specifically in the policing of black and indigenous bodies. And through understanding the history, we understand that we're fighting for the abolition and the, you know, the abolition of systems that police our bodies and our communities and not just destructing those systems, but creating supportive systems and structures in those in the place of those harmful systems that allow us all to truly thrive. Um, and there's always more to learn, all of us, everyone, including myself. So yeah. Wow. Thank you so much, everyone. Um, the dialogue we had here today is just it was so insightful. And you know, there are a lot of times where I wake up in the morning and I find it really hard to be hopeful. And I get really depressed, but talking to activists who are like-minded, like myself, reminding myself that I do have a place in this movement and we all are important in this movement and we all need to keep fighting. I think that's all we can really do. Um, we need to make sure that we are the vocal majority and that our vocal majority who believes in reproductive freedom and freedom for everyone, we need to be more vocal than the people out there who are being hateful and trying to tear us down. So to that end, like I mentioned before, um, Chicago for Abortion Rights is sponsoring a March for Abortion Rights in celebration of International Women's Day. And it's going to kick off at noon on March 5th at the Center for Halstead. I believe that a piece of information with all that on it should be on your screens right now. Um, but I highly encourage everyone in the Chicago area to join us to keep the fight going. And if you're not in our area, try to find out where things like that are going on in your area and keep an eye out for social media from the sponsors that we had here today. Their information should be showing back up for you again. But every one of those sponsors is heavily involved and at the front of this fight. And we're going to keep in this fight to make sure that everyone can still have that bodily autonomy that we all rightfully deserve. Um, one more time, I want to thank our absolutely amazing panelists, um, Dr. Roberts, Dorenda Hancock, Katsia Sharif, and Kim Varela-Broxson. Your conversation today was fantastic. Um, again, don't forget to follow all of our sponsors on social media for more information on how you can keep up the fight. And I hope everyone has a great night. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.